You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. ...to the most dangerous prayer that Jesus prays in the garden. So we're going to enjoy, as best we can, understanding today how Jesus prayed. We're going to look at three postures of prayer that Jesus assumes when he is in the garden and praying. And so we're going to be going through this passage verse by verse. So if you have that bulletin out or if you've got a Bible, that would be um, a a great thing just to keep open because we'll we'll come back to it often. And uh, if you're a type A note taker, you like taking notes, uh, I'm going to break Jesus' postures down into three parts. So the first one's going to be expectation in prayer. Then we'll move to submission in prayer. Then we'll move to victory in prayer. It's as simple as ESV. Expectation, submission, and victory in prayer. But before we do that, why don't we start in prayer? Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, I just, I just ask that um, everybody that's here would get a sense of your presence, that your Holy Spirit would be speaking to us as we open up your word. And God, may you show us the posture of Jesus, how he spent time in prayer, that he prayed dangerously, and that it might help us as we learn how to pray and come before you. So be with us, God, we pray. Lord, would you help me to be helpful as we open up your word? And may you speak to us here today in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to hide this microphone so I don't accidentally hit it. There we go. Okay, so we're going to dive right in to uh, the first passage. So why don't you open up? We'll have a look. At verse 39, we're going to start with this first posture called expectation in prayer. Let's read from verse 39. It says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Okay, so there's a couple of things to notice here. It says right at the front that it was Jesus' custom to pray at the Mount of Olives. And this is a helpful picture, right? Because in Scripture, we we talk often about pray, uh, pray without ceasing. You know, take every thought captive and offer it up to God. That's a, that's a great way to pray as you're walking to the office or you're walking down the beach. You're thinking and talking to God with every thought. It's a great way to pray. But here we also see that Jesus takes some intentional times to get away to the Mount of Olives and be before his Father. It's important to see that Jesus also had a place that he liked to go to pray. In this passage, it says he went to the Mount of Olives. But in other passages in the Bible that talk about this particular place, they fine-tune it to say the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane literally means olive press. So that signals to us that Jesus probably had a, a rich friend that had a private garden that he would go to regularly. And it's still a place that you can go to. It's just east of the city of old Jerusalem. And if you look at a picture of it, 
Um, it's a place where it's just far enough outside the city to where Jesus could have had solidarity uh, so be you know with his father. But it's close enough to where he could see the people that he was praying for. Do you have a place like that? Were you able to go and pray before your father in heaven? I imagine here there's some pretty picturesque places that you could go to, right? There's maybe a, a bench that overlooks the water. Maybe it's a surfboard that you're sitting out on the water. Or maybe it's a park while your kids are playing. Do you have a place that you can go to get before your heavenly father? For me at this life stage, um, my spot is my kitchen table. You see, we've got three kids. I've got a, a two-month-old that could that needs to be fed at the drop of a hat. So six o'clock in the morning is about the quietest time that I can find. And uh, I'll often get up there. Um, I'll light a candle on our table because why not? Um, and I'll open up my Bible. I'll read about a paragraph of scripture because that's about all my brain can take that early in the morning. And then I'll also open up this book. It's called The Valley of Vision. It's these old Puritan prayers. And it, I read one of those because that, that really gets my mind thinking about the things that God is trying to say to me. Um, I, but as, I've, as I have this newborn, I've started to appreciate how difficult it can be to find those times of intentional prayer. Um, my wife in particular, uh, she has our little baby girl, Margot, all the time. She is an all-consuming human being. She's constantly got to eat. She's constantly got to be put to sleep. She constantly uh, burps and poops. Sorry to say that in a sermon. Um, but there was, um, there was a, a couple of days over Christmas where my wife was sick and she was out. And so I got a bit of a glimpse into her world. And trying to find time to pray when you've got a human on you all the time is difficult, right? Um, I, I remember during that, uh, during that time as I'm changing uh, Margot and she's got a dirty diaper and I'm wiping her bottom. My time in prayer looks like just reminding that Jesus had wiped away my sin. <laughs> that was the only time that I could think, oh, this is a reminder of the goodness of, of the gospel. But infants actually, I, I think, are a great reminder to us of what prayer really is. They are constantly dependent upon their parents every second of the day. And as we're in prayer, that's how our posture should be before God. So we've seen that Jesus likes to pray often, but how is Jesus expectant in prayer in this moment? Well, as the passage says, his disciples followed him into the garden. And it's important to note at this moment, we've actually lost one of the disciples, right? This happens right after the Last Supper and Judas, the infamous disciple, has gone off to betray Jesus. And so um, Jesus enters the garden, starting with 11 of his disciples, and then he ends up taking only three of them to a secret spot. And his three disciples that he takes, Peter, James, and John, uh, they're a stone's throw away. That's what it says in the passage. So they were close enough to where they could probably hear Jesus praying. But if you think about the place that Jesus goes, he's going to a garden where he took the disciples regularly. It was a place that Judas would have gone to pray with Jesus all the time. So why would Jesus pick a spot if he, that Judas knows and he knows that Judas is about to betray him? He's about to bring all of the Roman soldiers with him. They're about to walk him off to be stoned and beaten 
he's, he's about to enter the cross. Why would Jesus go to a place like that where he knew he could be caught? Well, did you pick up what Jesus actually says to his disciples in that first passage? He says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. So Jesus, we know, could have avoided this betrayal. He was all-powerful. He was all-knowing. He could have avoided it. But he chooses in that moment to be at a place where he knows he'll be found by Judas. And what does he say to his disciples? Pray that you don't enter into temptation. What is he saying? He's saying, expect temptation. Pray against temptation. We'll we'll find out a little bit later that Jesus was actually going through his own temptation in this moment. But he takes that moment to tell his disciples that temptation is coming. And let me say, temptation is a hell of a thing, isn't it? Temptation is a foretaste of hell on earth. You and I are constantly tempted to do things that we know aren't good for us, right? We're constantly tempted to think like our forefathers and mothers, Adam and Eve, that we think that we know what's better than God. We're constantly tempted by the sins of sex and money and power and prestige. Those things in themselves aren't bad, but we are constantly tempted by extorting those. You and I will constantly be tempted that God is not sufficient enough to overcome our fears. So what do we do in moments like that when we know we're being tempted? Well, I hope we'll do a couple of things. I hope that we'll recognize we're being tempted. And maybe there are some habits that you know that you'll go to. You'll go to places where temptation is easy for you and you'll recognize that and try to break those habits. Maybe even more dangerously, you'll actually go to a friend of yours or maybe a couple of your brothers and sisters in the Lord and you'll confess to them I'm being tempted at the moment. I'm going through a difficult stage. But I hope above and through all of that, we'll do exactly what Jesus asks us to do, and that's to pray. Expect temptation and pray against it. And so let's just take a moment to think. What temptation is coming for you in this moment? What's something on the horizon that maybe you know is coming down the track? Or maybe you don't. Maybe you just need to pray that God might lift that burden that you can't see at the moment from you. So expectation in prayer, as kind of Louis was saying earlier, it's not just believing that God will move when you pray. It's absolutely that. But in this context, Jesus is saying, expect that there is a burden coming. Expect that temptation is coming and trust that God could move in power to change your heart in the middle of that. So that is what having expectation in prayer is. And you might say, well, that's all well and good, but isn't it a sign that if I'm constantly being tempted, that that's just a weakness in my faith? Why would I have to depend so much on God? Well, why don't we move to the next posture that Jesus assumes in prayer, and that is submission in prayer. And he's got some things to teach us there as well. Let's look back again at verse 40. 
It says, and when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed. Now, there's another scene here that as Jesus is walking into the garden with his three disciples, the other account of this, one of the other accounts of this passage in the book of Matthew tells us something happens to Jesus. Now, I'm just going to read a bit from um, the, the book of Matthew as he describes this passage. And I want you to see if you can notice what happens to Jesus. It says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed. So as Jesus is walking into the garden, this sorrow overtakes him. What do we think Jesus is experiencing here? Well, I think Jesus is experiencing something that he had never experienced up to that point in his life, maybe into all eternity past. You see, Jesus, uh, throughout the scriptures, is eternal, right? He's con- he is one with the Father in heaven. But at, that, at this moment in the garden, he's starting to get a foretaste of what it would be like to be on the cross. He's starting to see what this separation from his Father might feel like. And he is sorrowful over that. This human side of Jesus is coming out, right? Jesus is fully God and fully man. And so in this moment, we're seeing that Jesus is troubled. His heart is moved. Why? Because he is feeling the separation from his Father in heaven. Now, we know that Jesus was often tempted by sin. It says in Hebrews 4 that um, Jesus was tempted in every way, that he is this sympathetic high priest, that he is the God-man who can empathize with every weakness that you and I have because he was tempted in every way, but did not sin. So Jesus wasn't struggling in this moment because he was being overcome by sin. He was actually struggling in this moment because he was holy. He was struggling with fleeing what we would call sin-bearing. He knew that the, the, the weight of the sin of, of the world was coming and that he had to do this. He had to bear your sins and my sins on the cross. But he was struggling because he wanted to remain connected to his Father. You remember that prayer that we just saw? He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. So in the Old Testament, that reference to the cup was God's judgment or God's wrath. So the cup that Jesus was about to drink was filled with your sins and with my sins. And so this is Jesus' struggle in that moment. He doesn't want to be the sin bearer. And rightly, he feels sorrow over that. 
Now, and you see how sorrowful he was because as um, Johan read earlier, he was so stressed that he was sweating like drops of blood. Now, people will ask, well, was it actually blood that Jesus was sweating? Look, I don't know, that, but there is this medical condition called hematohydrosis where like your blood capillaries burst and blood just seeps out of your pores. That's very rare, but it happens. Regardless, whether Jesus was sweating, sweat, or if it was blood, you can, the point is, is that Jesus was in intense sorrow. Now, Christians, in particular, often get this wrong. We tend to think that if something is going wrong in our life, that we should just be happy, that we've got to put this mask on. We've got to smile about it. Why? Because we have Jesus. Well, just in a moment of honesty between me and you, over the course of my life, I've had this unfortunate experience of dealing with clinical depression and anxiety multiple times. I wouldn't wish it upon anybody. And if that's you, if you've had that kind of experience, I'm more than happy to share more of that story with you after church. Come up and chat to me. But I remember one time I was going to the doctors, and this was a Christian doctor that I saw. He knew that I was a Christian as well. And I was explaining to him that I had these symptoms of depression. But the doctor looked confused. He looked back at me and he said, well, hang on, Brenton, you're, you're a Christian, right? I said, yes. He's like, well, why are you dealing with depression? Do you, do you actually know Jesus? Are you sure that you're saved? Now, in my depressed state, in that moment, I was actually relieved that I had read my Bible. <laughs> because... Honestly, if you follow that train of thought, right, the Christian should always be happy, you would be neglecting the one person that you and I are called to actually be like, and that's Jesus. Right? Look at Jesus in the garden. Is he, is he happy here? No. <laughs> is he healthy? No. Now, was Jesus always like this? No, he wasn't. So just quickly, if you're that person that only experiences pain, and depression or anxiety, you've got to know that's not normal. And you should be seeking the right medical advice. You should be chatting with your close friends. You should, importantly, come to your church family and ask for prayer. Now, on the flip side, if you never experience emotional stress or pain, that's not normal either. You know, maybe you've Come, uh, maybe you've isolated yourself from all of those people that are close in your life because you don't want that to come out. Or maybe you're worried that if, if you do actually talk about your stressful moments in your life, that, that everything will crumble to the floor. Or maybe it's like, you know, those Facebook people where they're just, everything's awesome, <laughs> right? You only see your best life. If, if you've been a Christian for a while, you know the song Amazing Grace. Have, have anyone sung that song before? Do you remember the first line of Amazing Grace? I won't sing it for you, but Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch like me. Right? We sing this song so often as Christians, we, can obviously, we just sing it by rote and we forget that in that line, we're actually saying something about ourselves, aren't we? You know? If, in fact, if you can't sing a wretch like me, how could you possibly know Amazing Grace? 
If sin, if you understand that sin in your life is tearing you up inside, that temptation is always there, and then you experience the grace of God in your life, you'll know that it's amazing, right? Now, Jesus, um, in this moment, if we go back to it, he actually has a second half of this prayer. Let's look at it. Verse 41. It says, Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus is asking for this cup of judgment to be removed from him. And I don't want to spoil the ending of the gospel for you, but that cup is not removed from him. Jesus ultimately goes to the cross and bears the weight of the sin of the world. And if you think about it for just a second, this might be the one moment in scripture where Jesus, his prayer is answered with a no. Father, remove this cup from me. God says no. In the other gospel accounts, actually, it says that Jesus prays that prayer three times. Three times Jesus heard no from God. Shouldn't that give us encouragement in prayer? That if we don't get a response from God, guess what? You're praying like Jesus. Jesus went back constantly to the Father. He prayed, he heard no, but he still trusted him. Because what did he say? He said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. God answered that with a yes. I love that prayer because in this moment, we're seeing Jesus' full humanity, his sorrow on display, but we're also seeing his full divinity, his never-ending dependence and trust on God. And what was that trust? He was trusting in that moment that God knew what was best for him, but also what was best for you and me. Jesus was submitting his will to the will of the Father, and he was praying that their wills would be aligned. He was being submissive in prayer. Now, submission is a word that you and I don't like to hear much, right? But the fact of the matter is all of us live under submission, right? How many of you are married? Okay, whether you're a husband or a wife, you're living under submission, amen? <laughs> How many of you have a boss? How many of you have clients? Let me ask you this, how many of you have ever had parents? That's everybody, right? At some point in your life, you are living under submission. And so why is it different with God? You know, you know what when submission is easy? <laughs> submission is easy is when you have a sacrificial husband or wife. That even though they ask you to do stuff, it's a joy to serve them. It's when a boss really wants to invest in you professionally and personally. It's when a client maybe asks you a whole lot, but has a lot of grace for you. I bet I don't even have to tell you when submission is hard, right? But let's spare a moment Let's take a moment just to consider what Jesus is going through in this moment. You see, he's been fully aware every day of his life that the cup of judgment is coming for him, that the cross is at hand. And yet in that moment, he's thinking about you and me. He's thinking about what the weight of sin would be to you and me. We couldn't stand it. 
we wouldn't be able to hold it. We still can't hold it, except for the grace of Jesus. That in that moment, he says, you know what, Father, I don't want to go to the cross, but I know that the cross will be sufficient for them. And so in this moment of submission, Jesus' heart changes. It changes from an apprehension to go to the cross to a submissive, beautiful, sacrificial moment in prayer. And friends, let me tell you that when you can see the love of Jesus for you in this moment, submitting to the will of the Father is easy. You know how we talk a lot about knowing Jesus at this church? Well, then when you really get to know Jesus, you know what he would tell you? He would say, know the Father. Know the Father because his love for you is never ending. Submitting your life to God is not saying, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. You know, Jesus actually didn't pray that prayer. He didn't say, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. No, his prayer of submission was, Father, help me align my will with your will. So when you and I are expectant in prayer that we know that we need God, and when we are submissive in prayer, praying that our will would be aligned with his will, you and I get to experience this final posture that Jesus takes in the garden. And that's victory in prayer. Let's look at our final passage. It's in verse 45, Luke 22, verse 45. It says, And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus rose from prayer. That is a significant moment. Um, both Matthew and Mark's Gospels, when they note that Jesus rises from prayer, he goes directly to his disciples and he says, the hour has come. Jesus has poured out his heart to the Father. He's spoken to him about his apprehensions and he's submitted his will to his. But Jesus, he rises victorious in prayer. And how do we know that? Well, he's told his disciples the hour has come. Jesus is re now ready to take on whatever comes ahead of that because he has prayed and he's trusted God. He's fully dependent on him in that moment. Now, I bet that there are areas in your life where you're battling to trust God. Can I just say to you, though, that Jesus has been there too. Maybe you're having a difficult time seeing through a situation in your life. Jesus has walked that road. And guess what? It is Jesus in those moments that we're having who's praying for us now beside his heavenly Father. He's praying them for you. And because he has been through that, if we, can, if we can get that picture of Jesus praying to the Father in heaven, you and I can also walk in victory in prayer. Now, what does victory in prayer actually look like? 
Well, it doesn't necessarily mean that all of your circumstances in your life are now changed for the better. It can mean that. But victory in prayer for you might look like making that resolution this year that I want to go find that place to go sit on the park bench regularly and pray to God, showing him that I trust him. Maybe victory in prayer for you looks like taking the steps that you need to wage war against that temptation or sin in your life. Maybe victory in prayer is um, having that conversation or hearing from a friend of yours who's got some kind of critical illness in their life and actually taking a moment each day to pray for them, for God to heal them. Maybe victory in prayer is, is stepping out in courage and talking to your neighbor about Jesus, the one that you have been praying for, and asking that God might change their life completely. Victory in prayer might look like that you realize that temptation is coming and submitting your life to find freedom in God. Every prayer that you pray is a war against the enemy, and it's a war against temptation in your heart. It is a dangerous prayer. Because if you're praying against temptation, you know that there are forces and evil darkness that wants you to stop. But when you pray expectantly, when you pray in submission to the Father in heaven, you can walk victorious because Jesus has done that for you. And we know that Jesus is victorious, right? Because he didn't stay dead on the cross. Three days later, he rose from the grave victorious again over sin and death. And you and I can experience that. So we're going to end our time today in prayer. And we're going to walk back through this together. We're going to, we're going to pray those three prayers under those three headings that we saw today. So what I'm, going to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to do your best in this moment where you're sitting. Maybe it's leaning forward in your chair a little bit. Maybe it's closing your eyes. Sometimes I like to um, open up my hands as, as a posture, just to signal to God that I want to receive whatever you have to give for me in this moment. I'm going to walk you through three different prayers. It's just a conversation that you have with God alone. So the first prayer I want us to pray is a prayer of expectation. So why don't you just pause for a moment, offer up to God any temptation, any difficulty, any stressor or anxiety that's on your mind at the moment. Just take a moment to be quiet and offer those thoughts up to you. And let's pray a prayer to God in submission now. Take a moment to talk honestly with God about where you are at in submitting to his rule and reign over your life. And finally, let's pray in victory. You might not feel the victory in the moment, but why don't we just offer up to God and ask him to give 
you the strength to trust him with your life. Even if that might be for the very first time today. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.